Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Leeds Library, the Leeds Library's podcast series in which we talk to members of our extended community about their lives, their work, and their relationship to books, libraries, and literature. Founded in 1768, the Leeds Library is the oldest surviving subscription library in the UK, and throughout this series we'll also be diving periodically into the library's rich history to find out what makes us and our members one of the most interesting and unique cultural institutions in Leeds and the UK. Hello, I'm Molly McGrath, I am the Projects Assistant of the Leeds Library, and today our guest is poet, journalist, teacher and performer James Nash. James was born in 1949 in West London, where he spent his childhood and teenage years. After moving to Leeds in 1971 for an MA course, James spent much of the 70s and 80s teaching, discovering he had a particular flair for working with challenging young people who were often in challenging situations. In the mid-90s, however, James decided to quit teaching to write full-time, and now, alongside having produced an impressive collection of published works, James is also a successful performer, journalist, speaker and editor. James, hello, welcome hello. to the Leeds Library podcast. Thank you for being our first guest to record, actually. Really? So, very exciting. Um, usually we'd split the podcast into two sections, and the first would be a broader discussion about your work and career and the second part would be focused around a particular book or piece of work. But having read your most recent collection of sonnets, um, which is called A Bench for Billie Holiday, I want to suggest that we start off by talking about it from the get-go, partly because I've got so much to ask you about it, and secondly because this particular collection seems so linked to your life and your memories that it would seem almost impossible to separate the two. But of course, that's the great beauty of poetry, that it works on such a personal, emotional level. And yet at the same time, one of them is one of the most formal, constructed um, and structured forms, particularly the sonnet, which you've been almost using almost exclusively for the last 14 years and which you describe as almost an addiction. Mm. As I said, um, to me, this collection feels intensely personal and autobiographical. The voice in most of the work seems to inhabit this timeless space permeated by all these memories and meaningful spaces is it uh particularly as personal as it seems does it make a difference to you when the poetry you read is is personal do you think that it affects the way you read a work i am um, i think it's interesting because um i most of my poetry um even the non-sonnet poetry was written in the first person and people were always tempted to believe that it was about me, but sometimes, like many writers who tell stories, I write in different persona and inhabit different personalities. A Bench for Billy Holiday is the most challenging mm. collection I've written because it contains um, at least half a dozen intensely personal poems based on actual experience. Mm. And there was no muting I wrote about um, aversion therapy in the mm. late 60s and early 70s. I wrote about um, um, death. I wrote about things that had actually impacted on my life. Growing up in a, um, a violent household after the Second World War with a soldier father who clearly was um, suffering from post-traumatic stress. I wrote mm. about that. And so when, I, when it was published by Valley Press, I thought, oh my God, it's out there. 
I felt slightly exposed. And it took me three weeks after publication before I sent the copies off to my sister and my two brothers. Mm. Because, and then I kind of waited at home with a sort of fingers in ears thinking, oh, I hope they like it. <laughs> and so it felt quite risky. Um, and, you know, the way that I organized the poems, those very personal poems, was to take you through the seasons of the year from January and from me aged um, aged three mm. to 70. Yeah. yeah. And those kind of, I mean, I definitely the seasonal stuff is, of course, everyone can, everyone knows the changing of the seasons so intimately. But I always think when I read poetry, it's always about me. And, you know, as much as you might know a, a, an author's autobiography, it's such a personal thing and it really it's amazing how these such intense personal experiences that are so tied to your life are you know when I read it I was like yeah that's about me of course that's about me and I think it's interesting that you've titled it after Billie Holiday and definitely the 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 poem that it's titled after a bench for Billie Holiday talks about an art an artist's work speaking to you and and there's a let me find the line yeah your doubt you spoke to me and all your doubts and fears seemed mine I think that's it yeah yeah I think um as a um an unout gay man um what we didn't even use the word in the 60s I would mm. have been queer um which of course has been reclaimed but as a as a boy struggling with my identity and 1964 or 5 um, in a really boring suburb of West London this not wasn't glamorous London it was really bloody boring mm. um, 30s sort of semis and detached houses all built near the tube station kind of thing um, I had nowhere to place myself and then I came across the music of this extraordinary woman who had only died about five or six years before who was an outlier. She was angry and fierce mm. and she had all the kind of problems of somebody who had been through extraordinary racism. But she was brave and fierce and something of her kind of courage and ferocity gave me some kind of courage mm. um, to, to, to be who I eventually became. Yeah. Um, and I think I will talk a bit about art in your poetry and how that has, has seeped into it later. But I wanted to ask you first about the sonnets. So you've been, you said um, in another podcast that you started writing sonnets 14 years ago and they rewired your brain in a way. Yes. Um, so, and actually you've got a, um, a sonnet from your first, yeah. um, collection, Some Things Matter, which was the, the kind of inception of your love of sonnets, which you're going to It was to the read. first one. And I was attending, um, um, a, an event at Leeds University English Department. The students had invited me and they'd get this old local poet in. He's just down the road. He'll come along. And I think I was there just to sort of... Um, say things like somebody at school speech day, well done, you know, that kind of, mm. kind of nonsense, which I'm perfectly capable of doing. Anyway, I thought I'll, I'll sit in on one of the workshops run by a really fine poet called David Tate, who's had a collection published by Smith Doorstop, and he writes on it. And I thought, they're a bit difficult. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. And it was two days before... Um, two days before um, St. Valentine's Day, and I knew that I was going to write something for my... 
um, then partner, now husband David. And um, so I started off this sonnet and I had two days to kick it into shape after the workshop and um, it eventually became the first of the hundreds and um, it changed a bit after that first night but I think I got some of the kind of the feeling and the not quite believing that we're in 2008 or 9 and that it was possible to have a civil partnership mm. and not so long after possible to actually have a, a civil marriage. So mm. here we go. It's the title um, sonnet from Some Things Matter. If you should ever go, my heart would break, leaving a house of empty rooms behind. If you should go, be careful what you take. Some things matter, but others I'd not mind. So take the books, the CDs and the fridge, the pictures from the wall, the bathroom sink. Take the front garden and the laurel hedge, for these are not important things, I think. But leave your imprint upon the pillow and the faded T-shirt you wear in bed. Leave the battered sofa and its hollow on the arm where you always rest your head. For if you should go, there is no doubt. In truth, it's you I could not do without. Wow, thank you for reading that. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's so strange to hear um, poetry for the first time spoken as opposed to written because the rhythms just so affect how you how you come to it, I think. I think, I think people can look at sonnets and think, oh my God, it's all a bit complicated and Elizabethan. Mm. And the truth is that once you start reading it, it mm. lifts it from the page and starts making sense of it. And mm. I am so in love with the iambic pentameter. Yeah, because it's so it's so human because it, it doesn't mimic the kind of beat of a heart or and, the way, and the way we naturally we, speak. The way we naturally speak, yeah. and I just adore it. Yeah, yeah. wow. Um, so... Okay, so a lot of the work in this most recent collection, A Bench for Billie Holiday, um, seems to coalesce around works of art um, and works of art that have affected you in your life and museums, and this often feels quite cathartic. And I noticed this particularly reflected in the sonnet Stained Glass, Return to Brum, where you talk about an art gallery um, as a link to a person. And I wonder if you might be able to read a bench for Billie Holiday for us and talk a little bit about your relationship to, relationship to art and music, etc., and some of the art that has inspired you um, throughout your career and your life. Obviously, Billie Holiday is... Uh, she was absolutely key. But I can... I was... You know, I talked about growing up in a really boring suburb of West London, but the flip side was that it was possible to jump on a tube and go to the National Gallery, mm. and go to um, the National Portrait Gallery, and go to Charing Cross Road, which was then full of gorgeous record shops, and you could feel that you were part of swinging London, even though you were going home to your mum and dad at four o'clock in the afternoon on your kind of Saturday tube saver ticket, or whatever they were called, you know. So mm. it was a huge privilege, and I think very quickly I was... Old school friend and I, Ken, always used to do these trips together, and um, and I remember being very taken by um, 
a picture of St. George and the Dragon painted by a Spanish, no, an Italian painter called Uccello, and it's pre-perspective. And I remember looking at it and being completely enchanted by it, um, aged about 13 or 14. And mm. I think it was the, that's when I started falling in love with visual art. But at the same time, if you were born, if you were 15 in 1964, you were surrounded by um, great pop music, the beginnings of progressive music, I mean, I was also surrounded by loads of classical music and jazz. Mm. And music and the visual arts and reading have always been the, the greatest of stimuli for me. Poetry seems kind of to be at the intersection between visual art and music in a way because it's so much about looking and noticing and observing, but then also about rhythm and sound. So... I think you must, you can't help but be inspired by Sure, both and of those I think things. the, you know, growing up in that particular period, but still listening to music every single day, um, and, um, and, you know, being married to somebody who is a very good visual artist, mm. um, it's, it's just so, so important to me. Yeah, and I suppose in that, in that vein, I think art can be such a great repository for memory and in such an immediate yeah. link to the past. Um, but I kind of I wonder what you think poetry has to offer as a, a form that perhaps other um, forms of art and literature don't. I think quick quick comment about music. Music, as as does the sense of smell, has a has the power to transport you back in time mm. to the first time you heard the music, or when you heard the music when you were having a particular experience, you mm. know, whatever it was. Um, I think poetry can do that. And in my next collection, which we'll talk about later, um, I have allowed some of my poetic references to stay in the lines. Because having read poetry all my life, got a couple of English degrees, my head is full of broken lines of poetry. Mm. But those lines are the lines that I read which summed up an experience for me. Words I couldn't have put together so well. Mm. Um, and so I hear, I'm never on a train when I don't um, think about Philip Larkin's Whitson Weddings. I'm never um, in a garden um, and seeing flowers and I don't think of kind of summer Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, yeah. they, and the words just come into my head. Oh, so your next collection is, uh, you've left some... You've taken wholesale, in a way, lines and kind of uh, embedded them in magpie. Like, well, that's, I mean, so much But of... I've actually, I've acknowledged it. Whereas yeah. in, in here, there are, not borrowings, more yes. like kind of little little bits and pieces. But yes. in this next one, I just, I was doing the editing thing and I thought, I'm just going to leave it in. Yeah. You know, so I've written um, a, a kind of a hopefully a funny sonnet based on Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into oh. That Good Night. <laughs> and I've let everybody see that that's what's happening. Mm. And I've, you know, I've, I've left some larking in, um, in, yeah. um, in some of the stuff. But that's so text. true to life, I think. That's so true to yeah. how we all experience poetry and how we yeah. all think of poetry because it's it's true it is just fragments of songs going round and round and round in your head when you're walking or when and, you're... and you know you you see something and you think and and somebody else's words come into your head and you yeah. think that's amazing yeah that's amazing yeah you know? yeah um so yeah on that note a bench for billy holiday okay 
right? So I want you to imagine this Gorky, um, 14, 15 year old, six foot three, um, like a rake, thin as a rake. <laughs> I didn't have long hair because my father wouldn't have allowed it, but I went to university and immediately got long hair. Um, and so I'm sitting in a, a kind of a, a boring suburban park, a bench for Billie Holiday. I would not put a bench for you in Harlem or Philadelphia where you were born, but a suburban park in Hillingdon where I was once sit young and quite alone. Growing up and your songs were in my head with a melancholy of teenage years. Although you had been five years dead, you spoke to me and all your doubts and fears seemed mine. The sixties in West London not for me a swinging decade or town. I was in love, but knew no abandon. Just good morning, heartache, sit down. Fifty-four years on, my thanks go out to you. Old man hums what a little moonlight can do. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> um, so this idea of art as a kind of comfort during difficult times or as a guide to live in the present uh, even even art that's been you know or, or poetry that's come from the past um and the way it can kind of function as a teacher and a best friend mm. um and you were a teacher for many years and you often worked with with challenging students um and you said on on the i think a leeds lip fest podcast actually that being a performer um, of of poetry made you a better teacher because it equipped you to be brave uh, to to be braver and take risks with with the kids. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and how your years of teaching have influenced your work? I always remember one of my teachers telling me that the best way to understand a difficult concept was to try and explain it to someone else. <laughs> yeah. um, and that ability to synthesize language um, or ideas into language as a second nature must have been I was, incredibly um, useful. I was a special needs teacher, um, mm. and I was particularly good at teaching maths, which is hugely ironical because um, <laughs> my maths O-level was an act of God. It had nothing to do with me at all. It was just a sheer act of luck. Um, but I discovered, I've taught for a year unqualified at a secondary one school in West London, and I discovered that I um, had a kind of way of looking at these young people. I had had a, a kind of quite privileged but quite damaged childhood, mm. and I think the damage that I knew to be in myself I recognised in young people, and I think they recognised kindness in me and humour in me, and also extreme scariness because I could be a scary teacher um, it was part of the, what you had to do but I could look at the young people um, and I could we could have a great laugh together we could have we could talk about how we could get on with each other we had great discussions about um, you know if ever there was a fallout or a fight which often with these kind of um, slightly, um, how can I put it, I don't want to say damaged, because it sounds as if I'm judging them, but children who'd had difficult experiences often found it difficult to conduct their social lives. It was all drama and falling out. So I think in my work with young people over those 25 to 30 years that I did it, I was a pretty good arbiter with them. I learned from them, but I also hope they learned something from me in terms of 
kindness and getting on with each other, you know. Um, and I wrote about it in a in a book called Forefathers. Um, I don't have any children of my own, but we four four male writers wrote about their their fathers um, and their children, and I wrote about the children I taught and those. Um, hot Friday afternoons in a secondary modern school in Meanwood where you're struggling with your class and they're struggling with you and hopefully at the end you strike a deal and something gets done mm. you know? and at age 24 um, as I was then and it was all like <laughs> yeah well and I think so much of you know you can whatever your um you know, you can have a million degrees and be a crap teacher or you can have, you know, no degree. And if you're able to emotionally connect with yeah. people, that I think is what makes you excellent at teaching. Sure. Um, and yeah, those are the teachers that I remember. Well, I think, I mean, we've all had, I think everybody's had at least one inspirational. Yeah. Um, my, I would like to pray, pray, pay credit to Arthur Head, who um, looked like a Toby jug. Um, he was um, probably only 35, but we thought he was ancient. And he was the most inspirational English teacher it's possible to have. And my ca friend Ken and I, who were both in the same A-level classes, both were talking the other day and saying he was better than pretty well any of our university teachers. Yeah, and you remember them for life. Oh, God, yes, he was brilliant. Yeah, in the way that you remember those, those lines of poetry mm. that yeah, really yeah. change you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, well, yeah, in a, um, in a similar vein, my favourite, absolute favourite sonnet in this collection um, was called Another Bastard Spring Sonnet, which I loved. Um, and, and to me, it seemed all about how um, painful and violent emotional change can be. You see, you've not been in Leeds long enough because <laughs> I would say another bastard spring sonnet, uh, even though I don't say bastard. Yes. I say bastard in real life, but it's another bastard spring another sonnet. bastard spring sonnet. And I think the thing about that was I was conscious, and I think all poets and writers are, that every year I write a, um, a poem about autumn, every year I write a poem mm. about spring and summer and winter, and we're trying to say something slightly different every mm -hmm. time and also if you write a poem about spring in leeds i imagine it, of course it's bastard spring because it's it's leeds spring you know and it's different and it's sort of two weeks later from your spring in in, in in london you know it's two yeah. weeks later and it's still bloody cold <laughs> and you're cycling to the gym and you're freezing yeah. everything off. And so rainy, I've discovered this oh, year. Oh, so rainy. That's just, yeah, no, that is, I think. That's just yeah. this year. Um, but yeah, and I think actually this year, I think probably it, it really affected me because I think like everyone this year, spring has just felt like such such a godsend and so needed because yeah. people had this miserable isolated winter. Yes. But at the same time, yeah, it's, it's kind of almost difficult to 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 claw yourself out of these, this cocoon. I mean, it's been a great spring, but it's been quite grudging, hasn't mm. it? You know, because you have a couple of days of sunshine and then it's mm. hideous mm. or overcast for a couple of days. You yeah. Know. And I like this because it kind of, it, it, it kind of sums up that feeling of like, oh, maybe I want to stay miserable in bed for another four months. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Uh, but if you wouldn't mind reading this one, I will. No, of course I will. Yeah, of course I will. Another bastard spring sonnet. 
watching the sky become the lightest blue and the clouds turn an unembarrassed pink, I feel that winter's ending, the new year with green thought, and I'm on the brink of changing. I can feel the lightest thrum of blood beating in my veins, the surge of life, the pulse of everything, the insistent drum in birdsong, the surge in stem and leaf. Spring, you bastard, once more you have caught me, made me remember the terror of youth and its beauty, make me look again and see the year's fresh violence, the sharpened tooth, no light dalliance in confected art when you first break, then remake my heart. Oh, shivers. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, thank you. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of a sense of mobility in a lot of your poems. And we were talking before we started recording about walking around Leeds. And I've been tramping around Leeds uh, for the last six months, getting to know it, um, which has been really amazing. Uh, and I think it's more, I would, I mean, I would say it's more uncommon for a poet not to be a walker, actually, I think. I always remember like Wordsworth was a really oh, uh, Wordsworth very walked, walked for walker. miles. Um, yeah. And Dickens, again, not a poet, but mm. um, he, he walked 20 miles a night. I think a lot of his was, he walked through the night. A lot of his was kind of um, um, ADHD or whatever it's called. Mm. But I mean, you know, he just had to walk. Mm. Um, and I think, I mean, I am an incredibly nosy person. So I will cycle around Leeds and I will think, I've not been down that road for a few few years whiz down the road have a look you know hope the lights are on so you can look in the front room I love to have a snoop in it's just fantastic so and you know discovering things in Leeds that you didn't know so Mm. you cycle down a road in Hyde Park and you can see that Arthur Ransom lived in a house there and you know I think there's another road Cumberland Road where J.R. Tolkien actually lived for a little bit so it's a city that has quite a few writerly sort of um, traditions and, mm. and stuff, but it's it's a brilliant city to wander around. Yeah, and I like that um, that sense of you might you know there's something that you might see yeah, flying yeah, around yeah. the corner, and I think that's actually kind of in a way reflected in a in a sonnet that last rhyming couplet. Actually, <clears throat> it's the kind of like last little. It brings you back. It stops yeah. you. It's a kind of slow buffer at the end of a little argument in a poem, yeah. and I like that. Um, yeah. You. Know, you You've got your six or eight lines of introduction. You've got another six lines of but, and then you have a little um, a little conclusion in your yeah yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so uh, the final question: We can't not talk about the your your poems that are set in the Leeds Library or about the Leeds Library. <clears throat> um, so you discovered the Leeds Library shortly after you came to Leeds as a master's student for the first time. Um, I was doing um, a dissertation on Wordsworth and William Godwin, the 18th century philosopher. Mm-hmm. And my um, I hadn't got much of a background in 18th century. I was much more interested in the um, Romantics. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, my tutor said, you need to go to the Leeds Library. And I said, what, the Leeds Lending Library? He said, no, the Leeds Library. He said, because they have all the books. Mm. And so I would come along and I was allowed to be looking through 18th century books of philosophy, 18th century books of poetry. And um, it was a kind of wonderfully um, brilliant introduction to a lovely place. I'd come here 
probably one afternoon or a week and read. Yeah. Um, it is an amazing space. And I remember the first time I came in here just being <coughs> kind of, uh, yeah, blown away. Amazing. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it is very serene and calm. Mm. Um, mm. Okay. So this is the Leeds Library, 1971, MA year. Um, and it's kind of me as um, a young man, 22, 23, um, at the very cusp of, of what am I going to do next? Um, what can I do? Um, and um, the Leeds Library was a refuge. It was a time of dreams and I found them everywhere, in the trees on Woodhouse Moor, in the black of Leeds Town Hall, the rhythm of the voices new to my southern ear. And I found them just off a city street, sitting in their old bindings like family friends, leaving their indentations on a seat. I breathed in their company. It made amends for years of young man turbulence and fear, of fighting for air as I made my way. I sat at an old table, dreams massed near, this was my temporary camp that day, and many following, and my spirit knew that reading would save me. It would be true. Wow, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Again, yeah, as, as um, someone who, probably the same age as you were when you first came here, and having just discovered it, I was like, yes, this is all about me. This is exactly about me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so we've talked quite a lot about Adventure Billy Holiday, but you've got a new yeah. a new book, Heartstones. Sure. Um, it's an interesting book um, because um, it's not a COVID book, but it wouldn't have happened mm. without coronavirus coming along. I was writing a collection of... Um, poems about Leeds, a city, Leeds, a city of houses, um, structures and statues. And um, we were locked down. We have a house very privileged in um, the East Riding mm. um, where we go quite a lot. And um, at the very beginning of the first lockdown, we were actually in Bridlington. Um, and um, I, um, my health could be quite compromised by coronavirus because I'm very asthmatic. Mm. And so my partner said, let's just stay. And um, that first lockdown was a lockdown of the most extraordinary spring where we cycled out into the worlds. Um, we cycled along the, um, the coast. We took our dogs for a walk on a daily basis. And we discovered fossils on the beach and shells and all of that kind of thing. So the, the stones, mm. and my partner David has always, if ever we've been on a beach walk, found a heart-shaped pebble and given it to me. Mm. So at the end of a walk, I'm clanking <laughs> with these stones. And I just wanted to write about the East Riding of Yorkshire as well as the West Riding where Leeds mm. is based. And so we... I expanded the brief, and the next collection is coming out in October, and it has um, it has poems about Queen Victoria, the statue which is in Woodhouse Mall, the lions outside um, 
the town hall, which always looked very pissed off to me, and um, Flamborough Lighthouse. So it's got the whole range of buildings mm. and places and landscapes and nature of the very beautiful East Riding of Yorkshire and the West Riding too. It's interesting that you say that those poems are kind of, a, there's, there's magpie-like lines that you've collected and, and fit in there when, yeah, collecting stones on a beach and uh, feels a bit similar to that, maybe these little kind of memories that take you back to this, uh, an emotional core, basically. Absolutely, and I think the thing that, um, um, that I've kind of come to realise, I mean, a friend of mine is an academic at York University, and I said, I'm a bit obsessed with mortality, Jason, and he said, all your poems are about death, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not true, but I think all art is yeah. our grappling with our own mortality. Yeah. You're not reading a nature poem which is not just about the thrush, the darkling thrush. Yeah. It's about the temporary nature of things. Yeah. And I think that as a 72-year-old, I'm, you know, I'm kind of on the not on the top of the slide, but I'm on the last go around. You know, I might have another 10 or 15 years. Um, but it's it certainly makes you think about um, living and mortality very mm. differently. Well, all poems are about life in a way, and, and yeah. life and death are two sides of two yeah. sides of the same coin. Sounds yeah, like yeah. a cliche, but it's true. <laughs> it is true. It is true. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, I think that is all of my questions. But thank you. No, it's been fantastic. This to has be been here. really, really wonderful. Um, thank you for being such a generous guest. Where can we? Um, where can we find more information about you? So you've got a website. I yeah, think. it's just being redesigned at the moment. It's looking quite nice. Um, it needs some of it. It's, some of the actual writing, as on lots of websites, is fantastically out of date. You know, you write it four years ago and you, you find it says, my next collection will be in mm. 2017. Um, so website, uk. There is a James Nash who's a racing driver. That ain't me. <laughs> Um, and um, I have an, a- an Amazon page. Um, I'm going to be setting up a, a Goodreads page, but you can find most of the books um, on Amazon. Um, you can get them from Valley Press. Valley Press is the most spectacularly good um, poetry publisher based in Yorkshire. They do short stories, but they, they've got a terrific um, catalogue of um, writers from the very young to the increasingly elderly and of course if you come into the Leeds library if you remember we have james's uh, collection for billy holiday which we've been talking about today available to borrow <laughs> <laughs> thank you this has been a podcast from the Leeds library links to more information about our guests and any works talked about can be found in the description if you'd like to find out more about the Leeds Library and any of our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.theleedslibrary.org.uk or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at The Leeds Library. Thank you for listening and keep your eyes and ears peeled for more tales from the Leeds Library in our future episodes released every Wednesday. <laughs>